you know, recently I've actually gone away from that um, and instead um, adopted this belief for teaching. And I'll share it. It's a, uh, it's a quote by the poet Degas, and he says that it's not the job of the gardener to force the plant to grow, but rather the job of the gardener to create the ideal conditions for growth. Every single individual has a story to tell, and they're great stories that need to be heard. I want every listener to know they have the ability to change the world. Welcome to the 1720 Podcast. What's up, Mountain Movers? Welcome back to the 1720 Podcast. This week, two awesome things have happened, Stuart. I could, okay. I don't know what they are. Go. First one, your first prep sheet. Oh, yeah. I am proud, man. Yes, I am the king of not preparing for things, but I did do a little bit better job this week. <laughs> That's not what I meant, but it, it ties into the second awesome thing, but... One of your favorite inspirational leaders, Tyler Costin, is joining us today, which is what led you to create this awesome prep sheet. So some awesomeness kicking off for this. Yes, week. yes. My my sales pitch to Tyler when I was like, hey, man, will you come join us was, you, Tyler, you were like the the one. Like I was like, dude, if we get Tyler on the podcast ever, we made it. So we made it, man. We made well, it. Man, I appreciate it. I was reading the prep sheet, too, and I was learning. I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't remember saying that. That's some good stuff. So you must have made it better. So I appreciate you uh, sending that over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's, here's, man, here's how we usually get started, just to give us a jump point, which is, you know, what we sort of call the elevator pitch. But I'll just generically say, who's Tyler Costin? Tell us who you are, man, so to kind of level set for our listeners. And then we'll walk through your story and get some good leadership stuff from you, et cetera. So who's Tyler? Awesome. You know, I'm going to keep it simple. You know, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. I am a leader of my family and I'm passionate about helping people achieve their dreams. All right. So my interface with you, I mean, from the side, right? Not directly is, is buying through basketball. And so if you're playing podcast bingo at home, you're about to get a bunch of checks on our podcast bingo card. Tyler, just to bring you into the loop on that. Mm -hmm. Apparently I say like the same nine things every week. <laughs> And so there's a checkbox. Uh, it's uh, talking about my kids, uh, talking about basketball. I, I use the word pivot a lot. What are some others? Kid? We'll just check them off and go blackout right here. Well, what you're wearing collects bingo as well. The quarter zip, that's a signature. Quarter look. zip all day. But, the, quarter, the quarter zip is a good look, though. It makes everyone yeah, look see, more in shape. Yeah. A quarter, and, and I did like, the, um, like a collared shirt underneath it so it doesn't look like I got on athleisure, like no, I dressed it up and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my interface with you is, is kind of watching from afar while my kids are engaged in this thing called PGC. Basketball is a lot in our house. And so I think basketball probably forms the basis of a lot of your story. So tell us a little bit about how you started to come up through, through hooping and basketball and where that journey yeah. led you, man. Yeah, you know, actually, uh, I like that you share that it's a big part of your home because that's where it started for me as well. So my dad's actually a professional golfer. So if you're into golf and you want to get better at golf, just follow him at Costin underscore Jeff on Twitter. He gives free lessons on Twitter every day, but he's a PGA professional. I've caddied for my dad in U.S. Opens, PGA Championships, um, every tour, but the women's tour. He tried to get in, but they would not let him um, on the women's tour. But he's uh, it's been he dropped out of college where he's playing college golf, turned pro after his uh, junior year, and has uh, been a professional. 
professional golfer his whole life. So we grew up on the road with him. We were homeschooled, my family traveling around every golf tournament you can imagine uh, to put food on the table. And uh, he's also a golf teacher. And so he has his own golf academy. You know, he's done stuff on the golf channel. You know, he teaches with a guy named Mike Bender, uh, Mike Adams. These guys are, are well-known dudes, David Ledbetter. Um, and so that was, uh, that was my life growing up was all around professional sport um, and caddying for him when the bag was bigger than me. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, tournament officials had to come up and like, ask if I was okay and if my father was abusing me in any way as I was carrying this bag around that was bigger than me in like hot summer days and stuff like, like that. I'm here quasi-voluntarily like exactly. it's for the yeah. most part I, mean, I want to be. I mean he won't feed me if I don't do it but I think it's okay. Um, <laughs> so so kind of grew up that way and um, but my dad my dad's first love was always basketball and so you know, after he would practice golf, you know, I'd go play basketball. He had scholarships to play college basketball. And so um, that's really where the basketball journey began. Um, you know, as, as his journey was in golf, you know, mine went through basketball. And so I had the opportunity to um, win state championships in high school and play in college, get to go overseas for a minute, coach in college. Um, I've coached at every level. Um, started my own basketball club and academy, grew that up to about 30 teams. Um, and then uh, about 13 years ago, retired from college coaching as an assistant division one coach and went full-time to this PGC thing um, because what I learned was I love to teach and as an assistant college coach at the division one level less than 20% of your time is actually teaching basketball uh, most of your time is on logistics and make sure people are in class and making sure the meals are delivered on time and scheduling and recruiting um, and then when the practices and the games hit you're really um, watching the head coach do their thing um, and occasionally sprinkling in an idea and hoping that yours gets taken and uh, you know I just looked at the next 10 years of trying to climb that ladder and, and the culture that I was experiencing at that level and um, I wanted a little bit more and wanted to start a family so I stepped away from uh, coaching college basketball and uh, joined PGC to develop our curriculum and train and recruit our directors to run camps for over 10,000 athletes across the country. And um, basketball has taken me worldwide. And uh, it's just been an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to really teach life through basketball because everybody's passionate about what they feel they have a chance to be good at. And a lot of young people are passionate about basketball. Um, but in order to be good at basketball, you got to learn to be good at life. You got to be disciplined. You've got to be able to have to act in opposition to your feelings. You have to put others' desires above your own. Um, you have to push through adversity, um, which are all things that I want for my kids. All things that I'm still learning myself. And so, the best way to learn things I found is to teach them. And so I think most of my lessons have actually come through walking through that adversity with the people I'm teaching. And you know, no, you can't give away what you don't possess. And so uh, to keep from looking like a fraud up there on the stage, I've got to live it. Um, and when you have hundreds and thousands of people um, that believe in you, uh, it grows you. And so I think that's, uh, that's been my journey. My journey has been a product of the people that have, uh, that have decided to follow me. That is, man, so I, one of the things I put in the email that I sent to you originally was like, oftentimes kids are sitting on the couch, my kids at home, sitting on the couch watching PGC videos. And I like, I know this sounds a little creepy, but you're probably accustomed to it. Like I hear your voice in the living room, right? Listening to something, I'd be like, yes, that, because it's basketball, sure. But man, you guys are teaching kids life lessons and teaching them leadership lessons because you know this as well as I do. The, the ball will stop bouncing one day. You have to, you have 30, 40, 50 more years of your life to live and let's use this as a modality to like learn and grow 
And so that's the thing yeah. to me was like, man, I want my kids hanging out with whatever you're doing because they're learning basketball, but man, they're learning life lessons that I, maybe I'm telling them, maybe I'm not, but when, you know, you know how it doesn't mean a dad, man, like when they hear it from me, they don't always listen, but when they hear it from you, they're like, Oh, Tyler said that that's a great idea. I'm going to go work on that. I need to get a journal. I need to, whatever the thing is. Right. Um, so that's, I mean, teaching leaders, right. In an, in an overarching sense of the word is, is why you're here because our listeners aren't all ballers. Our listeners are professionals, largely in the construction industry. But I think there's a lot of commonality. There's a lot of lines to be pulled through, lessons learned from teaching coaches, teaching kids, and training people through life. And, and it's just some of those things. So we'll get to some of the like things I've pulled out, kitschy sayings, things I like to hear that I've heard from you. Um, but tell us a little bit about that PGC journey. Was that your first, when you jumped out of assistant coaching into PGC, was that your first engagement with them? It wasn't, no. I, uh, as a junior in high school, I really wanted to be a college basketball player. But unfortunately, no college coaches agreed with me at that point. <laughs> they were not offering me scholarships at that point. And uh, I was frantic. Like, I wanted this thing so bad. And so uh, I, I, my high school coach actually gave me a pamphlet to go see Dick DiVenzio, who is the founder of the Point Guard College, founded about nearly 30 years ago now. He played at Duke, wrote a bunch of books, um, and he said, hey, go check this thing out. And so I went, I got to spend a week with him, and he became a mentor of mine um, over the next uh, year and a half. And it really just changed the way that I thought about basketball and the way to play the game. Um, and and really, you know, I think changed the trajectory of my life. I don't know that I would be um, have the platform in basketball without that one experience. Um, he passed away in 2001, and you know, I went on and kind of pursued my career. And I was actually coaching. I was an assistant coach at a at a small Christian school in Canada, Trinity Western University, um, for the women's side. And our team actually played a tournament in Toronto, Ontario. We played against uh, the University of Waterloo, and the head coach of that team was Mono Watsa. Um, who is the president and owner of PGC, but at that time he was not. At that time we just connected because he had also attended the Point Guard College with Dick DiVenzio. Dick was also a mentor of his, and we connected over his books, and he said, Tyler, you know, um, there's this girl, Dina Evans, that is running PGC since Dick DiVenzio passed away, and she's asked me to come on board and help her out. He said, Tyler, would you like to come help and grow this thing? And I said, no, I just, I just landed a D1 gig. I'm good, man. I'm, I'm going to be coaching in Final Four. It's pretty soon. Um, and uh, after a, a couple of years of experiencing that lifestyle, I called him back up and said, hey, um, <laughs> is that offer still okay. open? Offer's still good, yeah. Right. So, uh, so yeah, and then uh, that was back in 2007, 08. And um, just been kind of building uh, since then um, with him and a really, really cool team. And it's been it's been really um, informative for my life and thinking for 13 years not to be in a specific coaching tree or with a specific team. But I've gotten to travel the world um, to go see like FC Barcelona, how the game is played in Australia or Japan, or travel around to D1 practices or go to pro practices. So I've gotten to see more a more varied approach to how the game is taught. I've gotten to be around more leaders than probably anybody else in basketball. Um, and and so when I teach people, I'm like, hey, this isn't me. Okay, Socrates said yeah. that you know the, the the wise learn from everything and everyone. The smart learn over, only from their own experiences. But the dumb think they have it all figured out. And uh, and I do not think I have it all figured out. And everything I teach, I've just assimilated and I've attempted to steal like an artist and reject the things that I think are outdated or don't serve. Um, and I've been able to be in the laboratory with hundreds of athletes for five days um, for 13 straight years. Um, and I don't have to win a game. So I've gotten to experiment with very few repercussions. Um, I think that's what's allowed me to really um, help innovate in the game over the past 13 years. 
Uh-oh, might have lost Stuart. Okay, good. I was hoping it wasn't me. Or he's just really mad at me because his yeah. face is or, just aimed right at my camera. Mine's blown right now. He's like, <laughs> he's like, check the prep sheet. Check the prep sheet. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say next. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, how did you get hooked up with Stuart? Uh, so him and I served in a few different capacities within the construction industry. So Texo, where our actual physical studio is, is our construction association. And so he's a construction lawyer and I'm in the glass world. We do glass on high rise buildings. And back in the day, we were in this thing called Young Constructors Council. And what happens, it's kind of like a big church. Like you, you show up all the time, you start seeing the same people show up o- over time. Then those are the people that are serving, staying until the end of the day, all that sort of stuff. And then just a friendship grew. And over time, you know, I'm from Chicago, so I moved here in, two, in Texas in 2010. And th- this is my family now. I just have this blessing of my most inner circle people are also in my industry. And it's created peer groups where we can help each other out, grow, uh, have each other's backs. And like, as you grow in your career, there's certain pl- times when I can't look around for answers here, but I can go to them. And so it's, man, it's, Texas has been such a blessing. Uh, my friendship with Stuart has been such a blessing. It's just awesome. That's, that's great to hear. I know that, yeah, community has been a really powerful driving force for our family over the past five years as well. We've moved for it. Um, we've, uh, we've invested in it. And uh, gosh, for anyone that's listening, you know, I think really identifying, we, we've got five pillars of our family culture um, that we've intentionally established. And one of them is called pick your team. And it's what we're teaching our children. It's what we're attempting to live out as well. But being intentional about the people that you spend the majority of your time with, because few things will influence the direction of your life. And the people you spend the majority of your time with, it's what you see, hear, think about, do. Um, it changes your emotional state. Um, so much so that like our community, we have all moved. We've moved from Washington, another family moved from Colorado, another family moved from Canada we've all moved to Phoenix Arizona in order to do life together to form our own school together um, to really support each other do business together Um, it's honestly been one of the greatest joys of our life um, intentionally picking the people uh, that we want to be around yeah when when somebody especially Chicago if they move from Chicago and I catch wind that they move here I get so excited to try and accelerate their learning curve and and connecting dots and relationships because I know how difficult it can be being an outsider and not knowing a soul out here, not having any family. I moved out here single with no kids and I was like, I'm just going to work, you know, and like you slowly, gradually build up those relationships like Stuart uh, and I have, but man, when somebody is coming from out of town, it's like, here's all these people I know, who do you need to be connected with? Like, here are these great restaurants. Here's a few churches. Like, here's the starter kit of the DFW Metroplex and let me know how I can help you out and just make the people feel welcome to be here and excited to be here. It's super cool. Am I back by the way? Yeah. Welcome back. Okay. I was, I wasn't sure. Sorry about that. We did a great show while you're gone. You, you, yeah. You overloaded with wisdom and your frozen face was so perfect because you were, you were just dumbfounded by the glory that he was sharing and he just couldn't take I it. Was, you couldn't even blink for like three man, minutes. Man, I had put my Segway hat on. We were going back. I was, and then I hear y'all, t- I was like trying to transition us and then y'all are like, where's Stuart? And I was like, oh gosh, 
<laughs> Wherever we were, y'all well, keep going. Well, I think I was just going to kind of share, we were talking about the importance of community, and I know it was one of the topics we wanted to talk about, which was leadership. Um, and, you know, even Stuart talking about your kids and their experience with PGC. I think that, you know, leadership establishes a feeling of belonging, safety, and I think that that's one of the most powerful things that a leader can do before they attempt to ask something of someone. And, you know, for example, I was recently uh, speaking at a coach's clinic. And after the coach's clinic, all these, I won't say where it was, I won't say who it was, but everyone was standing around and it felt very, um, everyone felt very vulnerable. Like everyone wanted to be included, but they didn't want to be made fun of. People were afraid to kind of exchange and share ideas. Um, there was a lot of, of like high school humor where people were making fun of each other. Um, and instead, and, and there, was, there was a person that was in leadership and the person in leadership was kind of setting the tone of, you know, ribbing the other coaches in the group and it just felt like a very um, unsafe and exclusive group that everyone was trying to get into um, and it just felt really wrong to me because it's the exact opposite of the the environment I don't like to use the word culture any longer because it's been co-opted to mean so many different things but it's different the environment that we've attempted to create at PDC that I attempt to create with with our community and with my family and so just you know just right there like I just attempted to start to just compliment people and to to kind of bring them in and to make them feel safe and you know whenever someone was made fun of um, like it, it, I attempted to like in a, in a non-combative way um, actually then go and kind of build that person up and say I don't believe that's true about you um, and it was really it was really amazing um, to see and again this is, this is about hopefully an opportunity for leadership for anybody that is choosing to listen to this thing um, by the end of the night it was crazy like the person that was this really really well-known renowned division one head coach that was kind of putting this thing on um, the group around him was quite small even though he's so much more well-known than me so much more accomplished than me um, and whatnot the group around him was very small and yet our group was just massive and people were laughing and having fun and having a great exchange of ideas um, and I think it just started with how um, a person made them feel and so I guess I would just urge whether it be a young person listening or a business leader listening that it's not necessarily your talent uh, that qualifies you or your accomplishment or your bank account or whatever it's how you can make people feel when they're around you and if you can make people feel safe and heard and like you can help them and that they can trust you and that you truly care about them well, then they're going to run through a brick wall for you. And I think that's true in sport. I think that's true in business. I think that's true in, in life and family as well. Um, and so that, that, that was just something that was sitting on my heart, honestly, coming out of uh, the last two weeks of travel that, uh, that I'm recommitting to myself that I just thought would be worth sharing. What, what is it about that scenario that you think it's why it started like that? Is it, is it all top down driven? Is that why it started out with that, like everybody feeling anxious and vulnerable? Mm -hmm. What caused I, it? I think status games. I think I think most people in life are playing status games, um, even if they, they don't think they are. Um, and and the every exchange that either gain or lose power, or status in the eyes of their their community. And you know I think I think that once someone steps out and rejects status games, um, it just opens people's eyes to it. But yeah, it was absolute it was absolute status games. Um, it, it, there was like a physical jockeying for position and proximity to the person, the coach in that group that had the most power. What's the what's the takeaway for from your perspective then for people who are stuck in a status game, right? Like that's the game that I'm currently playing, and I might not be high enough on the. 
I'll say food chain, but that's a little diminutive, but high enough on the food chain to begin to change the environment. Like that's the game I'm playing. What do I do there? What do you do in that scenario? Play a different game. Um, so, uh, like, for example, take the third door. And I actually think this is a. So, so I do my consulting for coaches and business leaders under this brand called Savvy S A V I Savvy Consulting, and the uh, it's actually a framework that we work through in an acronym S A V I S for simplicity wins, A for adversity strengthens, V for victory is yours to define, and I for identity that you commit to. Um, and so my answer would be when we get to the end of this framework about where does you truly find your identity. Um, and if you do find your identity and status and that identity is external, that other people are actually going to validate you um, with how they see you, um, then you'll always be playing status games. And so, you know, what I truly believe um, is that when people take back their own agency, and define their identity as something that is not dependent on someone's el someone else's perspective of them, that's when they can st stop playing status games. Um, and for a person of faith, um, that's really where it starts, is when you find your identity in something other than your behavior or your actions or your status, when your value becomes intrinsic and God-given based on being a beautiful creation, um, I think that's the first step um, of not playing the status game. You know, but I think, I think the, the mindset of always looking for a third door, like let's say there's this really cool restaurant everybody wants to get into, right? There's one way to get in, that's the front door. There's a big long line. It's really hard to get in that front door. Oftentimes there's a side door where it's like the VIP entrance. You got to know somebody, you got to have some status, right? But there's always a third door that very few people even consider or attempt. And it's in the back alley right by the trash cans. And that's where the cooks and, uh, you know, the, all the workers kind of go in and out where they go outside to smoke. Um, and I think that a lot of times status games only see two doors, right? They're like, okay, I can, I can wait in this long line. I can wait my turn. I can put my head down and work hard and try to gain status that way. Or I can, I can attach myself to someone that already has status, right? But if you only see those two doors to get into the place you want to get into, um, but if you see some sort of third door, which is I can go and befriend a, a waiter or I can go and uh, I can take out the trash or whatever. When you see a third door, um, which actually requires, requires a lot of strength and character and identity, uh, I think then um, you can actually be to get into the place and, and make some change because you didn't get there like everybody else got there. You know, one of my good friends, Phil Beckner, his tagline is be better or be different. You know, um, if, if you want to stand out, you got to be better or you got to be different. But to be real special, you got to be both. Um, and I think that status games are played when you're trying to do it, play the same game as everybody else. But when you play a different game uh, and you just reject it, um, I think that's when you can really do something special in sport, life, business, whatever. Do you see that status game being played out on the floor. I mean, and that's a loaded question. I mean, the answer to that's yes, you nod. The answer to that's yes. The, the really the where I'm headed is that does that status paradigm or that status game increase as you go up the you know the 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 uh, skill level or does it decrease in your experience? You've seen them all. Yeah. So. <clears throat> The answer is yes, <laughs> to both increase and decrease for different okay. people. So um, let, me, uh, let me circle back to, I think, the thrust of your question. But first, um, let me just kind of zoom out and third door this thing as well. Um, I think that sport is one of the best ways to teach young people that they have an identity that goes beyond their performance. Because all of the struggles, most of the struggles I've observed with mental health at both the youth level and the collegiate level and the professional level all come back to identity. 
all come back to identity. When their identity is correlated to their performance, then their character is inconsistent and unclear. Um, but when your identity is um, external from your performance and it is who you are as a human being, right? We're human beings, not human doings. Um, only then can your character be consistent and counted upon and only then can you be an elite performer. So to circle back to the thrust of your question, um, the, the many of the elite performers that have made it have a very clear identity and you know through my friend Phil I have gotten the limited opportunity to be around Damian Lillard and he would be an example of someone whose identity is very clear he is very consistent um, from how he shows up in workouts to how he I'm just nobody but he remembered my name after not seeing me for two months um, to how he shows up to with his teammates even even guys that get cut from the team um, they always come back to him and they, you know he gave him a place to stay he gave him shoes even though there's no status play for him in that and you know anyone that's going to perform at a really high level and bounce back from you know uh, a poor performance their identity has to be unshakable whereas many of the NBA players let's say that observe that don't make it they don't make it because of a lack of identity because I mean even at that level it's so high pressure that if someone underperforms they begin to doubt themselves I don't belong here I can't make it and that's why the majority of the league turns over every two to three years that's why the second contract for rookies is so hard to get um, because all of a sudden they're at this level and they can't perform and it's the first time in their entire life that they have been faced with this significant adversity because they're always in the biggest and the fastest and the strongest and the most talented and the few that make it and can find uh, a deep-seated belief and identity outside of last night's performance they're the ones that have a chance um, but if you don't have that you have no chance of, of succeeding at the highest levels. Um, I think that's true across the board. Do you do you try to, with your teaching and coaching, kind of open up that perspective, especially with students, younger students, on sharing what your identity statement is and letting them know that it's not performance related. This is who I am as a human being. Yeah, you know, I think I think supermodeling um, is a very effective way of teaching. So whatever, whatever thought or idea or belief that you want them to grasp, you model it times 10. Like that would be the concept of supermodeling. Um, one, of, one of the best teachers that I've been able to learn from, Doug Lovmov, shares that in his book, uh, Perfect Practice Perfect. It's a yellow book. I would highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, supermodeling is one of them. But, you know, recently I've actually gone away from that um, and instead um, adopted this belief for teaching. And I'll share it. It's a, uh, it's a quote by the poet Degas, and he says that it's not the job of the gardener to force the plant to grow, but rather the job of the gardener to create the ideal conditions for growth. And oftentimes, when we say, look at me, look at me, I did it, I did it, back in my day, back in my day, um, we're actually attempting to force growth. Um, whereas, I believe that trying to be the guide on the side instead of like the sage on the stage um, actually requires a little bit more time and a little bit more creativity um, and a lot more patience to actually create conditions for a learner to realize and experience the concepts as opposed to just being told them you know it's like you know you don't have to be hit with a hammer to know that it hurts I can tell you it hurts but you got to be hit with a hammer to know how it hurts. Um, it's, you know, so much so that, I, I mean, for me at least, like, 
I, I actually let my son Nash, he's two and a half years old, um, I might get called in right now, um, I let him reach out and touch a match recently. Um, I just let him, because um, I told him so many times, no, I gave him a little slap on the hand, and he wasn't getting it. Um, and so I had, I had the match, I said, Nash, do not touch the match, ow, ow, it's gonna hurt. And he like looks at me and still reaches and grabs it and then just bawling, you know what I mean? Um, I'm not gonna have to. I'm not gonna have to supermodel that one anymore. <laughs> I'm not gonna have to tell them about my experience anymore. Um, and so, like that's that's the A in savvy. Adversity strengthens. It's like a true belief that the only way to level up is to go through an adversity equal to your dream. Um, and, and I think in life today, and especially as as leaders and as parents, oftentimes we attempt to remove the adversity, remove the obstacle from the from. Well, let's take it into a team concept. Most coaches feel really good about themselves after practice if their practice looks pretty and everyone's in straight lines and their team was able to execute the offensive concept they were attempting to teach. The coach goes home and feels good about themselves. But honestly, coaches that are listening, you're lying to yourself. You're absolutely lying to yourself there because what you did was you gamed the system, you cheated the drill, and you didn't actually prepare your team for the biggest game of their life. Because the biggest game of their life isn't going to be easy with the perfect defense, with you talking them through it, with you blowing the whistle and stopping it and saying that wasn't right, do it again. That's not what's going to happen. The real game's messy. The real game's challenging. And what one should feel good about after practice is if your team went through a real hard thing and they didn't cave in with their mindset, they didn't get weak, they didn't make excuses, they didn't start pointing at each other. They, they actually strengthened through the adversity and talked about it and tried to fix it. Um, I don't think what we're trying to do is impose a set of behaviors on our team. I think what we're trying to do is grow a mindset. Um, and I think oftentimes as leaders, you know, we, we think that um, the behaviors that we force or require mean we're a good leader, a good coach, or a good teacher. Um, but rather, it's, a, I think, a, set, a, a mindset or an approach or an attitude that our team chooses to bring to a situation. That's the principle that's going to be able to be applied for success in many different situations, right? Principles over procedures um, is, is a core belief of mine, both in coaching and leadership. So I talked for a long time there. I see on your face you have many interjections you want to make. That's okay. I got lots of questions, man. I could just jump in anywhere. Here's a... I want to go back to this idea that like the A and savvy being like the adversity component of that. And I will say as a parent, I'm super guilty of trying to guard my kids against failure. And because I know that I'm trying to like guard myself against guarding them against failure. Right. But I really struggle with this idea of, and I'll kind of go back to your analogy of like, when is it appropriate to let Nash touch the match? Like at what point do you say, look, I've, I've, I've advised you, I've admonished you, I've helped you're just going to have to touch the dang thing to learn your lesson. Do you have any guidance around how you manage that that shifting or sliding scale there? No, because I haven't figured it out yet um, <laughs> at all. Um, I would just, I would just, I would actually just say this. Um, in this, I'll, 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 so this whole savvy concept is like really just it's just my heart. And it fits into these four words. And like now I find myself like it's hard for me to have a conversation. And it's good for me that doesn't come back to one of these four principles. Um, so for that one, I'd say just simplicity wins. I think oftentimes as parents, 
we sometimes just get a little, we overcomplicate things. Um, I'll, I'll remember forever what John Maxwell said um, in a conference that I went to. Um, you know, he's 60 something years old at this point, you know, uh, a renowned leadership guru, um, you know, family man, and he was asked about parenting, like what's the best parenting advice he could give? And he said basically this, he said, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. He says, he said, when I was in it, like I was sweating about every little decision we made, every little um, consequence we had to talk about. Um, should they spend the night at this person's house or not? Like all this stuff. He said, but at the end of it, he said it was just the through lines that matters. It was, it was just the character, the principles that we modeled and like the core beliefs. And so like simplicity wins. So when trying to decide you know how much or, or not how much I think just just keep it simple and trying to give a mindset that's what I'm trying to do give a mindset to our kids that lean into hard um, you know so like when when Charlie's doing her morning routine and she's banging out her push-ups and she collapses at 20 and she says I'm done for today I said that's yeah it was pretty hard huh how do you want to act in the rest of your life when things get hard Charlie you know, and she goes and does another push-up, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's less about like, oh, should I push her right now or not? And more it's just like, let me give this principle to her and let her make her decision. Because if in that moment she says, you know what, Dad, when things get hard, I want to just quit. And I'm going to quit right now. And she walked off. That's a cool teachable moment too, right? It's not just to get the outcome that we want. Um, and so I guess, I guess it's just, I, I guess what I would say is, Simplicity wins. Define your principles. Um, what really matters to you as a parent, teacher, coach, business leader, and then always zoom out to that. The more we zoom into the minutia, the more that it gets cloudy and unclear and gray. But the more we just kind of zoom out, um, I, I found, at least for me, um, it brings clarity. Go ahead, Kev. You took a deep breath before. Well, because I was going to say, when you do get in the weeds, it seems like you get more into solving mode rather than leadership mode. You get down in there, and then you're at you're you're going through that minutia and you're answering questions like this is this is what I would do, and then they're running with your ideas rather than their own. Yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And then, you know, I, I think that you know on, on the backside, I wish I had my shirt on right now, but like. Um, like adversity and victory have a, a correlation in in life that I've observed, you know, through my reading of the Bible, through any epic books or stories. I mean, think about any movie you ever saw. Like, there aren't very many epic movies that the protagonist has it easy and everything's good and then they win the championship and they're always the favorite like that movie sucks you know what i mean um <laughs> but like but like you know um like adversity then leads to victory and victory doesn't always mean that you're successful it just means that you overcame you know the um, fc barcelona recently did a study as they're always attempting to identify the best uh, football or soccer players um, and what they did over the past 20 years was identify that to be a star football player it really had nothing to do with their physical skills and talent really the indicator of whether or not they had a chance to truly be a star was their resilience and you probably have already you know read this study like resilience is the cheat code it's the x-factor and and so you know that adversity victory um, relationship is one that I hold near and dear to my heart for for anyone that I'm going to be coaching or teaching or anyone that, that I have the opportunity to lead um, it is it is core um, to run into embarrassment run into adversity lean into it because um, that's how you level up um, and so and so it plays out in so many different ways 
it, man, it's hard to let all those things play out. As I mean, as a parent, it's hard as a as a leader of an organization. It's hard as a someone at the office who has people who are looking at them gratitude. It's hard to just sit back and let them run into it or off the cliff or wherever you want to take. It's hard to sit back uh, because I want to solve. I want to protect. I want to defend. I want to champion. But man, you're, y'all y'all are both hitting the right point, which is that's not leadership. That's just being a, a giving and barking and giving orders. You're not leading those those teams. Yeah, and, but leadership is, is being there and present through it, and sure. supporting through it. You know what I mean? Um, and I and I think <clears throat> I think yeah I I I, I think so. Um, at least the people that I respect the most um, have done that for me. You know I, I the people I respect the most aren't the ones that just like you know airdrop. A golden parachute or airdrop the fix and then peace out um you know i think that's what um society and popular culture you know identifies as good and leadership i think politically right now um you know i don't know if we're getting into that i think politically right now that's what's popular um you know is to airdrop aid um but i i, I mean for me my identity is in, is in christ and is biblical and i just don't see that biblically um it, i don't see I, yeah i, I see that i, I see um, perseverance and the strengthening of faith. Um, you know, counter all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of any time, of any kind. You know, I mean, that, that's that's what I see, and that's what I believe. I think the the Rocky franchise doesn't it start to your point about the show? Isn't the first movie of the multi movie installment? Doesn't Rocky lose to Apollo Creed in the first movie? That's how it ends. But that's what gets everybody hooked. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You want to hear something terrible? Absolutely. You've never seen it. I've never seen Rocky. I've never seen any of the Rocky movies. Dude, it's so good. So good. So I've just like given up on a lot of like, like when you go on streaming services now and like you say, what's new? I've just given up on the whole what's new um, tab. And I'm just going back to the to the classics and rewatching the classics. I find so much more fulfilling um, unless it's Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, I can endorse. Tesla, Ted Lasso is on point. So good. Yes. I, I actually flagged, I haven't gone back and read it yet, but I flagged a story I saw earlier this week that was five leadership lessons learned from Ted Lasso. And I was like, I'm going to go read those because that dude is... There's some good stuff in there. I feel like we might see uh, we might see some diagnosis of Ted Lasso, similar to what we saw of The Matrix um, back in the day, and like all the correlations between The Matrix and like hu- themes through human history. I think Ted Lasso might go there as well. There you go. Yeah, you don't have to be the subject matter expert in order to lead a high performance team. I, I think the la- we watched my wife and I watched an episode last night where he was giving like a prep speech about look, the stadium's really big, but the the football pitch is the same size. And then his assistant coach is like, no, 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 this one's actually a bigger size field. He's like, I don't get this sport. Yeah, it was like they were gonna go back to a Hoosiers callback for a moment, and then they just blew it up. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna take that to Hoosiers. Didn't you recently spend some time in the Hickory Gym? Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Matt Smith, who runs United Basketball Clinics, does a clinic at the Hoosier Gym, the historic Hoosier Gym. So I got to teach 100-plus coaches, um, lock left, race in space at the Hickory Gym, shot a couple of free throws. I am an underhand free throw shooter, so I felt like I channeled channeled that, and that was great as well. So I was Wait. Okay. Are you okay. really an underhand free throw shooter? I'm really an underhand free throw shooter. Like, I can shoot both, but, like, so I – all right, so I experimented with this back when I had my basketball club, and I was working with fourth through fourth graders through high schoolers, fourth through seventh graders, terrible free throw shooters. They can't even get the ball there, um, and so I so I studied uh, studied it, studied Rick Barry stuff, and taught these kids how to shoot on hand free throws. 
they doubled their free throw percentage overnight. And so through teaching that, I've, uh, I'm have i about an 85% free throw shooter underhand right now. Um, it's actually quite simple. And within 10 minutes, I can get anyone to 70% underhand free throw shooting, which would revolutionize high school basketball free throw shooting if people would just listen to me. Yeah, it's pretiful. I'm assuming you're going two-hand, like, flip it so you still get backspin, yeah? There's a ton of backspin. You don't even have to flick. It's pretty simple. You just put your thumbs together in a seam. Thumbs together in a seam. Your hands are actually on the top half of the basketball. And there's three things you do as you let the ball hang. First, you break your knees. Then you break your wrists. And the third thing is you get your pinkies up. So break your knees, break your wrists, pinkies up. You don't have to do much flick, just pinkies up. And the ball rotates. Interestingly enough, this thing that people do when encouraging a free throw shooter to make a free throw is actually a call back to Rick Barry. So when Rick Barry shot, uh, an underhand free throw follow through actually looks like this. And because he always made it and because it was such an anomaly, when Rick Barry went to the free throw line, fans would do what his follow through was. And because he always made it, it became associated with, hey, I hope you make this. That is the history of the spirit fingers on free throws. Um, interestingly enough as well, Wilt Chamberlain in his 100 point game actually went 28 for 32 from the free throw line. He was historically a terrible free throw shooter. In fact, his coach once said, if you could learn to make free throws, we'd never lose another game. Rick Barry taught him in secret how to shoot underhand free throws. He went 28 for 32 in the 100 point game and then his very next game scored 72 points, shot 90% from the free throw line as well underhand and after that game never shot underhand again in his life because a couple people made fun of him and he was embarrassed. It, yeah, it demolished Rick Barry and Wilt Chamberlain's relationship because Rick Barry said I cannot respect someone that willingly performs at less than they're capable of because how they care about other people think about them, which is a lesson I use often when trying to help people adopt a new mindset um, and their identity. If you find your identity in what other people think about you, you're always going to be less than you could possibly be. Um, so underhand free throws is both a moral and physical victory. Dude, where were you at with Shaq? Yeah, Sha like, Shaq needed your help, like, my man. Call me. There, there's plenty. There's plenty. I mean, I mean, there's plenty more that could use a little bit of help on the underhand free throw right now. But again, it's just an identity game. Like, could you imagine? There's like, there's only two people in the past world that shoot underhand, Canyonberry, Rick Berry's son. Um, and I can't even pronounce his last name, but he's from Africa and just recently started playing basketball. Um, only two people that have played in the NBA or professional leagues that shoot underhand. So you either have to be the son of Rick Berry or from a completely different culture uh, to be willing to shoot underhand free throws. Wow, I didn't think we were gonna, man, that's just such a rich deep dive into <laughs> underhand free throws, but like a super <laughs> lesson in there that I wasn't expecting. I was not expecting the Wilt Chamberlain story uh, and the Rick Barry sort of disowning him through the process. Or that's not the right word, through the process of it. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, all right, I got I to gotta take us back moment if, if we can. Uh, tell me about Dick DiVinzio. Yeah. I was going to go there before I completely glitched out earlier. But, but cool. you, said something, <laughs> you said something about how like, meeting Dick and, and his mentorship sort of changed your trajectory. And I, I want to know all about that. I was a bigger fish in a small pond, as many high school basketball players are. Super small town. And I think the, the main thing that he did was he shattered my paradigm. Um, I remember you know, sitting at the back of a classroom session with him um, after having had a late night just chilling, hanging out with the, with the other guys, you know, thinking I was super cool. And um, I, I was kind of nodding off in class. And he walked from the front of the thing, there was 120 some odd people in there, and like walked right up to me as nodding off. And he's like, he's like, am I boring you? And I woke up, I remember this, you know, this day, and I, was, I said, no, no, you're not boring me, I'm just tired. And he said, oh, sorry, I thought you cared about this. Um, and and like, that just rocked me, right? Um, he's like, I thought you cared about this. 
Um, and, and yeah, and I think like that was kind of the start of it was like he was irreverent, um, a truth teller, and you know, like showed he cared by not caring about my feelings. Um, and, and that was really like the first person I think that really um, fully embraced that. And I think that kind of changed like the way that I attempt to be a truth teller with people as well. Um, and, and so I mean that he showed up one day wearing a red hat, like a big red sombrero hat to make a point. Um, like he, he would, uh, he would go into the court. It was just him and 120 athletes going to court. He would teach us what he wanted us to do. Then he would just sit down and roll the court in a chair and start reading a book. He said, if you want to get better, you'll make it happen. I'm not going to babysit you. Um, so just like I, as a, as a young person, I'd never been given that level of autonomy and responsibility before. Um, and, and for me, at least I embraced it. And, you know, I think, I think most young basketball players today, they only get better when their trainers in the gym, motivating them and yelling at them and, and urging them on. And if you need someone in the gym with you, uh, if you need someone um, in your in your bedroom with you telling you to wake up, if you need someone in the office with you telling you to work hard, you'll never ever be great. And so I think that was the that was the main thing I took away from from Dick was like you know greatness starts within like and if you rely on some external extrinsic motivators, it's gonna be really hard to stand out and be special. Um, and and the only way to strengthen. Uh, the muscle of discipline is acting in opposition to your feelings. Um, we all feel tired. We all feel bored. We all feel down. We all feel sad at different times. But but that shouldn't change. That shouldn't uh, influence how we act. Which is like the second piece of our family culture. Like Dick Devenzio is influenced by family culture, which is actions over feelings. Right? When you elevate your feelings over your actions, right? Then your habits will always be um, slave to how you feel in the moment. But if you elevate your actions over your feelings, and you develop habits that are regardless of your feelings. Um, so that's the lesson. That's Dick Davinzio to me um, in, in, in the shell. All right. So as we sort of wrap up here, the way we end usually is we do a books and one big thing. And you've, you've laid down a few books for us to check out. But if there's one for our audience, like, hey, man, y'all need to go read this one. What is what is that you think? What's your what's your one big wreck on that? You know, it's just it's just what day you caught me on, honestly, about a book. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do this. Yeah, this is me crazy. There's probably one percent of your audience that'll actually pick up this book, and one percent of that one percent that will actually love it as much as I do. The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. It is complete fiction, um, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier that it's not a, a it's not a, a set of procedures or a set of actions that I think we're trying to adopt. It's rather a mindset, and that's where I love fiction. Is fiction does um, it does share a mindset and approach and so the the, the mindset and the approach um, throughout this book um, the name of the wind is was has been so powerful and impactful to me and it really has influenced how I want to approach um, both the teaching and learning process as it follows the pathway of a young protagonist um, that's attempting to learn the name of the wind and the name of the wind is basically uh, uh, an example of knowledge of all things to know something deeply um, which is another thing that, that I believe is I, I really want to know things deeply I don't want to you know skip across the surface of life is with a person or with a with basketball I want to know it deep that's why I don't know anything about football because <laughs> I, I know basketball deeply so the name of the wind uh, would be my book recommendation the very the prologue will make you cry it's called a silence of three parts spectacular I think more of our listeners will go pick that up than you think. We're, okay, we're, we're relatively large book readers, so I will okay, check that out. We'll get back with you. Okay, give us the okay. one big thing. Like As we wrap this thing up, wind it down, let you head off to your flight. Listeners, yep. takeaway right here. What's your one big takeaway, man? 
one big takeaway is this. Know who you are so that you can change. So to improve is to change, to perfect is to change constantly. The reason I love working with young people is because they're willing to change. They're hungry to change and hungry to grow. For some reason, as we get older, we get calcified in our beliefs and calcified in our habits. There's no reason that we should die at the age of 30 and be the same person and live the same life every single year for 40 years until we pass away. And that's what most of society does. And so I would say embrace change, continue to grow, because when you're done growing, you're done. And so uh, let's continue to grow together and get better.